Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, a very important book is out, uh, and this is um, um, a very important discussion uh, to have right in the midst, uh, really at the conclusion of Black History Month, um, the reopening of several unsolved murder cases in the civil rights era, several cases uh, that really rocked the nation and uh, changed the course of history in this country. My very special guest uh, took it upon himself as a journalist and as an investigative journalist to look into these cases and to uh, reopen them. Um, As a journalism major myself, uh, I'm sure uh, he, like me, uh, frets over the state of journalism these days, and we'll, and we'll talk about yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> but if it weren't uh, for him and others like him that came before us, um, a lot of investigations like these probably would not have happened. Um, and he was not in the friendliest of places going back in time down in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Jackson with my son, and I took him to see the Medgavers' home. Um, when when we were there, yeah, and was just talking to him a bit about that uh, about that history, and uh, some of you also know my relationship with Dick Gregory, and and Dick used to tell the story how he was in Jackson, he was with Medgar, mm-hmm. and his infant child passed away, and he had to go back to Massachusetts. Wow! But he was staying there. And right. it would have been in the in the home, in the family right. home. It would have been a, a, a likelihood that he and Megger coming home together one night would have been in the car together and, on that, yeah, and yeah. got in their carport. So uh, we're happy to have um, with us uh, the author of the new book, and he's making his rounds around the country. I strongly encourage you to read it. It really is gripping. Uh, Race Against Time. Jerry Mitchell is here in studio with us for Make It Plain. 
Jerry, welcome. How are you, man? Doing great. <laughs> Been on the road, still on the road. It's yeah. great. And, yeah. you're, and you're a popular guy, too, because this is a great book. Well, thank you. I, I mean, think it's an important book, not because of me, but because of the stories it tells mm-hmm. of these courageous families and uh, and courageous people like Meg Rivers and so yeah. many and so many other people whose names aren't known. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. Local people that worked in the movement, and and we need to remember them too. You know, and I want to remind people too. You know, what's hot on Netflix right now? is this um, documentary, uh, Who Killed Malcolm X. Yes. Th- this book is like that, too, if you want to stay in that genre. Right. Because Jerry's telling the story about these other cases, and, and now that I mention it, man, um, movie. You, yep. you thinking about that? Have you seen anybody approach you about that yet? Or Actually, I have. <laughs> okay. All right, then. That's where it's at. <laughs> well, I, I think it would more likely be a uh, like a Netflix kind of thing. Yeah, documentary. Uh, well, not documentary, but uh, multi-part yeah. in, in terms yeah. of um, just from a standpoint of, of structure, I think it works better because you've got four cases. That's right. That's right. Um, and and were there we want to get into the four, but sure th- there were there other cases too. Oh yeah, we had quite a few, but oh, there yeah. was the, you you more these than one hundred twenty cases. Yeah, you know what what called you to 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 these particular cases? Well, what called you to do any of this, Jerry? This you know, is, that's a, you know what Fannie Lou Hamer was quoted as saying one time was, uh, someone asked her, supposedly, you know, why did you get involved in the civil rights movement? What made you choose to do that? She said, well, I didn't choose it. It chose me. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel that way about this. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's something I chose to do, but maybe it chose me. Generationally, too, I mean, it was a time. You worked for the main newspaper in Jackson. Yeah, State Declar- newspaper, the Clarion Ledger. <clears throat> I mean, there was a time when it wouldn't have even been safe for you to do this. And that's not to say it was safe your whole time you were there. No, no, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely correct. And so I guess you had to navigate through a lot of that stuff. Uh, editors and whatnot, were, were people always supportive, or did you always have to kind of push the envelope or what? I, I just had one editor who was kind of not so thrilled with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the vast majority of them were very supportive. and um, But I certainly had, you know, blowback from readers, from callers, from Klansmen, different things like that. Yeah. Death threats, yeah. all those things. Yeah. Yeah. But again, now, as, as the generations go by mm-hmm. and new generations come along, I'm, I'm sure this has been, you've gotten more support and, and more I people have, want to get I have gotten this more to be support resolved. over time. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. correct. So let, let's talk about some of the cases. And we alluded, first of all, to, to, to Meg Evers. Mm-hmm. Um, which was one of the most uh, uh, prominent cases, mm-hmm. and the other prominent ones here as well. But but Meg Evers was a, a major force within the NAACP, the field secretary down in Mississippi, yes, he was. registering uh, uh, voters. You um, kind of helped to um, bring shed more light because I remember uh, uh, Byron, and I want to say it right, is Delay. That's how he. His well, he, he called him. It was his nickname was Delay. Yeah, but it, Byron D. Lebeckwith. Yeah, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, uh, he was a character. 
Not, no kidding. <laughs> and 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 hardly racist too, I might add. Yeah, and and defiant, and he just said and did whatever he he Absolutely. wanted to do. Absolutely. Um, what was it that kind of uh, cracked that case for you, and 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 what moment was most revelatory for you? Well, I mean, it was so many things happened. I'm trying to think if there's in particular one. I mean, I think going to visit him to me was it was revelatory to me. I mean, I I'd never spent that much time with somebody, and he's you know so horribly racist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was uh and i i mean i spent six hours with him <laughs> it wow. was inward this inward that and then he started in on the other races and he's very anti-semitic and he's a part of what's called christian identity and i don't know if you want to talk about that or not but it's a very horrible kind of white supremacist religion and uh yeah. Really responsible for uh, that philosophy has been responsible for a lot of violence here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. He had had what two trials? Yes, and 64. the jury mm-hmm. and the juries were hung. Hung, and then finally there was another trial, and things went the yeah, way. Nineteen ninety four, he was convicted. They went the way they were supposed to go. What what was what was different in the trials in terms of the way they were carried out? Well, in in 1964, well, a few things. One is, interestingly, uh, Merle Evers was called Mrs. Evers for the first time. Mm. Isn't that something? Wow. Because in Mississippi, right. African Americans would not be called by courtesy titles, mm-hmm. which is hard to believe now, but it's true. Or they they uh, if, if you were African American that you would not be called Mister or Mrs. Right, right. You would be called by your first name. by your first name. So she was just called Merle. Well, 64. actually, in '64, she told the prosecutor, "If you call me that, I will object." <laughs> and so the prosecutor in '64 actually didn't call her anything. Isn't that kind of fascinating? That is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than say anything. Um, it, it, you discovered that mm. you know some of the machinations that went oh, yeah. on in '64. Uh, well, the, it is what I found out. There was an agency in Mississippi called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was a state segregationist spy agency, and all those records were sealed for 50 years. And I began to get leaks of those files, and what they show is the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. LeBeckwith for the murder of Meg Rivers, this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission was secretly assisting the defense trying to get back with acquitted and nobody knew that. Yeah, yeah. So, um was that that reopened the case. And so the the second time or oh, the third time around I should say. Right. Um was that a part of the evidence to show It wasn't the, part of the evidence, but it, it it helped to prompt the district attorney's office to reopen the case. Yeah. And and, yeah. and so that was there were a lot of things that, that had to happen that did happen. Morelli ever shared with me her copy of the court transcript that she had saved in a safety deposit box. Jackson police found a box that contained the crime scene photographs of the killing of Meg Rivers, including the fingerprint of Byron D. LeBeck with lifted from the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. And the prosecutor in the case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet, Yeah, which mm-hmm. sounds like I'm making it up, but yeah, it really happened. <laughs> The prosecutor in 64 or 94? 94. Wow. 
Wait, so <laughs> this is the so new prosecutor, yep. the modern era prosecutor. Yeah, Alec and Baldwin mur- played him in, in the, the movie. movie. Right. Yeah. And yeah. The, the murder weapon was found in his father-in-law's closet. Yeah, his father-in-law was a judge back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and my guess is they were getting rid of evidence one day, just throwing out the evidence in the in the case and say, hey, who wants the, this is my guess, you know, hey, who wants the gun that killed Negger Evers or whatever they said? Mm-hmm. Or who wants Byron D. Lebeck was rifle or whatever they said. I imagine it was probably the truly small world. world. Yeah. <laughs> so he took True. it home. It was actually, I, I just need to tell you that it was actually on on this show several years ago. Uh, Merle Evers was a guest of mine. Ah, what a wonderful woman. I know you know that. Oh, yeah. But she decided impromptu, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you're aware of this, but she decided impromptu to open up about the days leading up his death. Yeah, she's talked to me about this. When yeah. she asked the NAACP for help and security, they asked. Yes. And they refused. Right. The NAACP um, has apologized to her since they did right. in a big, but she told the story. And it right. was as if we were in her living room. Yep. Where the conversation was had. And interesting enough, she also said part of the rift was Medgar was also talking to Dr. King. Yes, that's correct. And he was thinking of inviting him. He, Dr. King kind of had a standing invitation to Jackson. And then the ACP leadership felt, well, Dr. King has taken over. He's, he's been such a force in every other city. We, If he takes over Jackson, he'll overshadow the NAACP once again. Yeah, there's there was friction between him and, you know, yeah. uh, the NAACP yeah. leadership. The usual... Uh, a little bit of human. a turf battle. Yeah. A little bit of a turf battle. And usually, you know, we 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 romanticize a lot in different eras, but people will always be human, mm. won't they? And have those yeah. tensions and issues um, yeah. and and egos, of course. Um, also, a, another a notorious uh, case. Uh, we talked to Doug Jones on the live show, yeah. I think, a few days ago. Uh, the senator from uh, Alabama was the 16th Street Baptist Church. Which Doug Obama. prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about about that one and and what were kind of the, the, the right. breadcrumbs that attracted Yeah, you. yeah. Well, uh, they were already, Doug and the prosecution team and the FBI had already been working on that for a number of years. I get, uh, well, All I was doing at that point was I had already been through two trials at that point and just kind of reporting about what other – cases were being looked at out there and uh, reached out to Doug, went and interviewed him, uh, ended up talking to Bobby Cherry, who's one of the last living suspects in that case. And months later, his wife emailed me, invited me to come talk to Bobby, as he put, as she put it. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. So I drove over. He lived in Texas, not far from Tyler, Texas, which is not very far from where I grew up, which is the schizophrenic town of Texarkana. So okay, all right. I knew where it was. Mm-hmm. And so I drove over, met him and his wife, took him out for barbecue because that's what I guess you take Klansmen out for. I'm okay. not really sure. Noted. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. I left that sign shop. I cord to him because I had to get home and watch wrestling. Pulled out that sworn statement. Yes, I'm. It, it said, you know, yes, I remember that night well. We're all watching wrestling. So I got back to the 
newspaper the next day and talked to our librarian, Susan Garcia, and just said, Susan, check what the Birmingham News was on TV that night. <laughs> next, the next day, I got you know an email from Susan. There was no wrestling. So, And um, you, you just did that? Yeah. So, if it was a snake, it would have bitten anybody else. I mean, it's you just, would think so, right? Yeah, just something you happen to look up. Yeah. So That's, that just came to you, or it, well, it just kind of made sense. I mean, yeah. well, this is the way we. Here's the, the one of the earliest rules of journalism, and this is the way we say it in the South. Even if your mama tells you she loves you, check it out. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> you are truly a journalist, my friend. Oh yeah. I, you know, I don't know a lot of people would do that these days yeah, because everything has to be in like 700 words now anyway. Yeah, yeah, but but we'll get it. They give me more than that. (laughs) Right, right. Well, thank God you might be one of the last ones who has uh, that privilege. And, of course, uh, another case um, that is well known, um, and it was uh, really a case of not just – at African American or African Americans, but you had Goodman, Cheney, and uh, Schwerner. Yes. Um, talk to us about that one and, well, and how you got involved in that one. Well, I got involved with it actually all the way back in 1989. I mm-hmm. saw the movie Mississippi Burning, you know, uh, and got interested in that case, started writing about that case. That's a fictional movie about those killings. Uh, although I don't even recommend it necessarily, it's uh, you know, it's fictional, and uh, we'll leave it at that. It's a long story about the movie, right, but right. but the the authorities really hadn't done anything about it. And then after Sam Bowers was convicted in the Vernon Damer case, um, again we're kind of looking at other cases at the process of that. I knew that Sam Bowers, who was involved in those killings. Um, basically the orders in those killings, had given an interview with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, but it was sealed. And so I began to develop sources who had access to that, and they basically uh, leaked it to me. And so I was able to read this interview that Sam Bowers gave in which he talked about that those killings and said he was— Quite, he was. There were a there was a federal trial. No one had ever been charged for murder with murder, but there was a federal trial in 1967, and he was actually convicted in that on federal charges, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not murder charges, but federal conspiracy charges. And he said he was quite delighted to be convicted and have the main instigator of the entire affair walk out of the courtroom a free man. He was referring to Edgar Ray Killen, or as he's known locally, Preacher Killen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so. I did. I I called up Preacher Killen, and you know he. We talked for quite a while and said, "There's some guy Jackson just keeps stirring things up and stirring things up and stirring things up." And I didn't have the heart to tell him it was me. <laughs> so he's just just talking. And so I took him and his wife out for catfish. And so. Okay, so I'm just trying to keep taking notes here. Barbecue in Texas. Catfish in Mississippi. Gotcha. Okay, I'm keeping it. So <laughs> in case I, when, you need to make I, notes for it, in case you yeah, get some clansmen, when, you when need to drop I take the clans, clansmen out to dinner. Yeah, that's what you do. That's what right. you do. Take them out to eat. <laughs> but he, he denied having anything to do with it. And I said, well, what do you think should happen if people were responsible? He said, I'm not going to say they were wrong. Mm. And then he proceeds to tell me this story about 
uh, himself, just about himself. When Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis, the FBI had no idea who did it. So they just sent out agents to kind of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. Two of them showed up at the doorstep of Preacher Killen, those whereabouts on April 4th, 1968. Is that right? He wouldn't talk. They left their car. Time goes on. Preacher Killen one day picks up the car and calls the FBI agent, wants to know who killed King. And the agent's like, well, why do you want to know? And Kellen says, man, I want to shake his hand. Mm. And, you know, sometimes people see in Mississippi and elsewhere, they see these photographs or footage of these old guys going off to trial, and they say to me, Jerry, why don't you just leave these old men alone? Mm-hmm. You know what I tell them? What was? These are young killers. Mm. They just happen to get old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sure were. And, and you also um, – um, Killen was was out during his appeal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you got a lot of influence, man. You actually published a story. He claimed he was immobile. Yeah, he said he couldn't raise his right hand. Uh, yeah, he couldn't. He the only he couldn't even be out of his. He could only. The, he was either in the wheelchair or in bed. It was pretty much what he told the court. Okay. And so the this is after he's convicted. After he gets sixty years. There's a hearing, there's a bond hearing, and the judge frees him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he mm-hmm. just walk, gets to go home. Mm-hmm. But you exposed yeah. that. I exposed that that wasn't wrong. true, yeah. How did you How did you come by that information? Well, I got an email from, uh, this is Mickey Schwerner's widow, who's okay. Rita Bender. And, um, and so she sent me an email that she had gotten from somebody else who said that, he had been spotted walking around, that Edgar Ray Killen had been spotted walking around, filling up his truck with gas. <laughs> and so she put me in touch with the lady who sent, you know, who sent the email, and then and then she turned out the guy who witnessed it was a deputy sheriff in another county. Ah. And so I printed that story. And then they ended up having a hearing, and he testified, and then there ended up being a whole bunch of other law enforcement testifying. And uh, the judge basically said, all right, if you're going to have that kind of attitude, you're, you're going to you know, you're lie to this court and you're going to prison. So, But uh, your journalism prompted a hearing that got a judge to lock him up. Yep. All right, so just another that we've learned about barbecue. Yeah, the judge called me the next morning. Oh, he did? <laughs> yeah. It was on a Saturday, weirdly enough. I just happened to be at the office, but it was during the middle of Hurricane Katrina coverage, so I was there. And what did he say? Well, he was interested. He was curious if the person who who told me this was credible. And I said, well, he's a deputy sheriff. Wow. <laughs> and, and he mentioned that he, was, he might have a hearing on it. So. Okay, okay. So I've learned a lot from you already. Mm-hmm. Barbecue in Texas. That's right. That's catfish. And you have the ability to influence judges' rulings with your journalism. So we need to sign you to <laughs> uh, Michael Flynn and Roger Stone's cases, right, don't we? Can we do that? Can we make that happen real quick? You hear that kind of juice, man. <laughs> I don't. I don't know of any other case recently where judges has has. Uh, uh, look to a journalist to get help with that. 
Um, all right, and then the case of um, Vernon Dahmer, who was also um, an NAACP yeah. uh, activist, um, in on January of January 10, 1966, right. Ku Klux Klan firebombed his home. He, um, he died defending his family. Yeah, um, the the case. Um, needed to be what happened with the case? Well, pe- people were tried with, for that case at first. There were there were several people who were convicted, and it was a bit of a joke. Uh, mm. Like the governor commuted their sentence, or pardoned them, or released them on work release, or you know, it was that kind of thing. Unfortunately, and so, but the guy who who ordered it, Sam Bowers, the head of the White Knights of the KKK, which was the most violent. Plan organization in the United States responsible for these ten killings. He was never convicted. Wow. So there was a reopening. It was reopened. Uh, they met with me. I did a story. And the Damer family met with me. I did a story. This was. They met with me after Byron D. Beckwith got indicted, which was in December of 1990. So that spring, they met with me. They um, then met with the district attorney. He reopened reopened the case. He acted interested and seemed like he was doing things, but pretty quickly got cold feet. Then he left office. Then another district attorney came in, and it looked like nothing was going to happen. I got an offer to go to grad school at Ohio State, and I'm literally in Ohio in spring of 1997 and get this telephone call from this guy who wouldn't identify himself but said he had information in the Damer case and wanted to meet with me. So I flew back to Mississippi and met with him, and um, and there were two sons of Vernon Damer, and he was there with his buddy. There were a lot of guns there that day, I think. Mm. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it turned out the guy used to work for Sam Bowers. Mm-hmm. He was a recovering gambling addict, and one of the one of the 12 steps is to make amends for the bad stuff you've done in the past. Mm. He mm. worked for Bowers, and it actually overheard Bowers give the orders to kill Vernon Damer. Is that right? So he came forward, and then the authorities kind of reopened the case in earnest. Well, and, and once again, uh, uh, too, your writing about the story um, allowed the Mississippi legislature to help yeah, they got it. some money because it was it was well. They, this was with the first DA. They said they needed an investigator, and then I wrote about it, and they got it. They. Get funded another investigator for him. You know what okay. I mean? So there's different little things like that. The, the first DA had kind of a series of excuses. I uh, He said he didn't have the FBI files, so I wrote about it. The FBI turned around and gave him the files. Wow. So, yeah, or, you know, let him view it. And eventually uh, the Attorney General from Mississippi, Mike Moore, was able to get Janet Reno to share the entire case file with him. And then there was a character named Nix. Oh yeah, yeah. I can I can tell that story if you want to. Please. So there's um, someone else you busted. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so Sam Bowers gets arrested. And this is now May of 1998. He's arrested. This is after Billy Roy Pitts basically starts cooperating. Uh, one of the key witnesses from the uh, from the previous trials. And so D- Sam Bowers is arrested along with his right hand guy. His name is Devers Nix. And um, when the family brought Devers Nix in, it was like the most pitiful sight you've ever seen. They were like wheeled him into the wheelchair. He had like one of those green oxygen tanks he's breathing out of, and they wheel him up in front of the judge, and he's like 
I can't take more than a couple steps without needing oxygen, <laughs> Judge. So the judge is like, well, I normally yeah, I do this. pretty good. Jerry Thank you. Aspects. Thank you. I do the audio book, too. Uh, so, uh, anyway, he's like, well, I normally, uh, the judge is like, I normally don't let people out without bond, but I'll let you out without, you know, let, the, I'll make an exception. So a dozen days later, this is like a reporter's dream. We catch him on the golf course. How? How did you find out he would even be there? Well, it's in the book. I he actually told me where he was going to play golf and where and what time. The whole thing. Like I didn't ask a single question. Wow. But it, it just goes to show, and a lot of people don't about reporting uh, that people don't think about is. You actually, at least in the South, you do this. You engage in small talk. That's true, right? You, right, you, right. And, and so one of the things he and I had talked about before, I found out he was a huge golf fan, and he, I talked one day for twenty minutes to him about the Masters, and he was mm-hmm. like a huge fan of the Masters. Mm-hmm. And, I, and of course, you find ways to connect with people. Go, oh yeah, my dad loves the Masters. You mm-hmm. know, so we're mm-hmm. talking. He's talking to me endlessly about golf. So he, I call him. I'm talking to him about the case, about something, some kind of question. He says, oh, yeah, I'm going to be down there at Gar- Bear Creek Golf Club at 830 in the morning. And I go to my editor and go, you want me to print this? And she goes, no, 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 don't, don't publish that. Just mm. we'll just send a photographer. <laughs> so that's uh, what we did. Rather than put it in the paper, we, we, we sent a photographer and we documented it. And then we did the story. Wow. And he got arrested. We ran like before and after pictures, like him in the wheelchair, him playing golf. Yeah, so he got arrested. So again, someone else claiming to be immobile. Yep, you exposed. So all of you uh, Ku Klux Klan members who are listening, Jerry, <laughs> don't don't tell Jerry. Don't tell don't tell me anything. Right? Don't t- but no, don't tell him you can't move because Jerry's going <laughs> to find out you're not telling the truth and bust you. So all you Ku Klux Klan members better get that. Um, also. Uh, the judicial branch you have influence over, obviously the, legis- <laughs> the legislative branch as well. We should have had you cover impeachment, man. Maybe that would have made a difference too. What do you think? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I had that kind of power. <laughs> now um, you um, have founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Yes, absolutely. Uh, how much would it cost me to round up some of our? colleagues in Washington, New York, and send them there so they can be re-educated about. There's some people. There's I would a, love that. There's a big building up the street. It's, what's the name of that paper? The New York, is it New York Times? Yeah. I'm sure there's some people up there that could. Hey, come is down. this for young people or can people who are already kind of played hey, out? Anybody, anybody, there? anybody. We're, <laughs> you know, we just, as long as we have funding, if they, you know, they get funding for the for them to come down. Absolutely. Wow. Come on down. We'd love to. Mississippi needs more investigative reporting, not less. And that's part of the problem. The newsrooms are vanish- shrinking, vanishing completely in Mississippi. Our stories that we've written so far, and we've covered a variety of areas, mental health, public education funding, and, uh, and especially a lot about prisons. We basically we basically told you know Mississippi officials that the prisons were going to blow up, and, of course, they, they ended up blowing up in December. Yeah. I, I had some friends down there involved right now in some activism around parchment. Yep, and that's what I've been writing about. I just did a big expose on parchment. Well, it's since it's, and I, you know how when you're on Twitter, and, you know, no, you don't, it, it, no, you certainly know what what it, stories are. Yeah, but I mean, there's so much information coming at you. I could have sworn I saw something the other day that one of the issues there 
and since you're important, I guess you would know, is that the the workers there? Yeah, they're only be paying twenty five thousand a year. Yeah, you're, which realize it qualifies them and their family for food stamps. Wow, so that's it's the lowest not... paid lowest paid in the entire country, and they and the legislature refuses to raise the salaries. So it's, you tell me how you tell me mm-hmm. how you're going to fix that. You get yeah. what you pay for, yeah. and if you're going to, you know, um, and you understand that maybe it's a lower paying job, but you can't pay people so little, you know, and expect to have professional staff. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's and I, and and I've talked to gang leaders, and they said, "Oh yeah, it's easy to corrupt the guard." And so I always walk yeah. up to them and go, "Hey, little lady, how would you like to make a thousand dollars?" Wow. Yeah. yeah, and 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 is is he? Um, someone, Paul Fari, tweeted this the other day, just in terms of, of the state of our industry. Sure. Um, if you take the newsroom headcount at the New York Times, seventeen hundred people, right? The Washington Post, eight hundred fifty, and the Wall Street Journal, which is about a thousand or twelve hundred, right? Those three newspapers employ nearly one of every five newspaper journalists left in the United States. That's probably right, yeah. Well, what's going to happen to us, man? What? Well, I think that's why we're, we started the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. We we realized that the nonprofit model is, is working. Um, uh, ProPublica is doing a great yeah. job. I worked with them for the past year investigating prisons. Uh, Marshall Project, they did, they've done some reporting on prisons as well. They're, they're excellent. Um, you know, there's just a a ton of really good journalism nonprofits right now. And I, and I, we just need it in Mississippi. We need investigative reporting. I mean, the problem that I've seen in Mississippi this way, regular reporting doesn't move the needle. It's investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. That, and, you know, you've got to really dig. And a lot of times public officials will try to stop you from doing stories or mm-hmm not release documents to you or whatever, not tell you what's going on. And so that's why we started it. And we are indeed a nonprofit. And so anybody who wants, has ideas for people to help us out and help with the funding, we'd love to hear about it. Well, folks, uh, be on the lookout because he's, he's on a world tour right now. <laughs> uh, that's right. They got me busy. Uh, Race Against Time, a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. You know, because as people were watching the Netflix documentary on Malcolm X, one of the main people died like days before someone could go talk to him. Yeah. Did, did and when when I think about race against time, did you yeah. run into that a lot? I yeah. Mean, did did, yeah. did, did I, the trail I, go cold with a few folk like that? Well, I know I know there was one in particular I remember distinctly. Uh, one of the one of the Klansmen who uh, basically he had it. Uh, this is where the bodies were buried. Uh, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner. Um, and so I found out that of someone who lived, you know, uh, was living there at the time when the when the bodies were buried. The the person who owned the property, Olin Burridge, claimed he didn't know anything about it. Like they they came somehow these clansmen came onto his property and and buried those bodies with, without any knowledge. And of course, one of the confessions mm. in this claimed that he led them to the place. And he even gave him gasoline to burn up the station wagon, which, mm-hmm. by the way, is the the cover of the book is mm-hmm. the is the burned out station wagon. Wow! Wow! So, uh, are there any other? Are you still looking into any cases right now? I I am open to them. The problem has been, 
almost every case I know of, like the suspects are dead mm-hmm. or the witnesses are dead. Mm-hmm. Doug Jones, for example, uh, with regard to the Bobby Cherry case, told me a year after the Bobby Cherry was convicted, so many witnesses had died within that year. Actually, they couldn't have prosecuted the case even a year later. Wow. So wow. that's kind of what kind of race against time yeah. it is. Yeah. And I, I'm certainly I'm all for you know, getting as many of these guys as we can, but we're not going to begin to get how many there actually were, obviously. We also had here on the show the gentleman who was in the car with Viola Luzo. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, he told that story and how he had to play possum. Right. So he had to pretend to be dead so they wouldn't kill him. Wouldn't be killed. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and and that, that whole Viola Luzo thing uh, – you know what? You know the informant in that case. Right. It's, it's very troublesome that yeah. whole sequence of events, and I'm not necessarily convinced that he wasn't involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, is the is that the same person that? Well, he was with he, the FBI. He was informing for, on behalf. He was of the informant FBI. for the FBI. Right. Yeah. 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 And you know, I don't know. I I suspect he may have shot shot her. I don't know if he did or not. I can't prove it one way or the other. Yeah. It, we even see in the Malcolm X documentary a lot of FBI fingerprints everywhere. Well, with the informants, you know, you're you're dealing like you have a Klansman who's an informant, but what if they're continuing to carry out violence? Yeah. Or like a Scarpa, he was a uh, Gregory Scarpa who actually came in to play in the Vernon Damer case. He was a mobster essentially. I think he killed thirteen or fourteen people. I mean, you know, you're using these guys. <laughs> You know what I mean? These are not good guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 may have taken advantage of that. Yeah. In in any of these cases, let me just ask you this. Sure. We brought the FBI. Um, where does Hoover figure in any of these? Oh, he hated the civil rights movement. He claimed they were all communists. They were doing their best to link King to communism. Oh, I mean, he was fighting against it the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, I think. I think the what happened was with the Mississippi burning case, mm-hmm. he kind of got because of LBJ's uh, the President Johnson's, you know, push on that 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 Hoover I guess felt there was no way he or he had to. It meant more, you know, more agents for him essentially. He was willing to accept the more agents, even though he didn't. I mean, obviously, he did everything to discredit King. It's clear the FBI wanted King to commit suicide. I mean, mm-hmm. there are all these things that, that the FBI did. Yeah, yeah. And in some of these cases, could they not have been more helpful? And yes. They, well, I think they were real reluctant because of the past to help. You know, like in uh, the, the a prosecution that predates these, it was over in Alabama, and I mentioned it, it Bob Shamless was convicted by Alabama authorities uh, or Alabama state of Alabama in 1977. Well, Bill Baxley, who was prosecuting that, had a heck of a time getting any kind of FBI cooperation, you know, because it didn't trust Alabama authorities. Right. And the same thing started with the Byron D. LeBeckwith case. The, the FBI didn't trust uh, Mississippi authorities, and so it was a – eventually they came around. Yeah, yeah. Race Against Time, folks uh, – a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. Jerry Mitchell, really uh, some incredible work. And, and thank you 
Well, thanks for having me. For what you, but really, for what you have done in yeah, terms of shedding light and and exposing this, I know the families are grateful, well, they, and, and all of us really. Well, I tell you what, I hope that's what the the story people get as well is the story of these courageous families, mm-hmm. you know, that um, were willing to stand up and 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 persevere. Yeah, I'm just going to schedule, uh, and one thing stands out to me right here. Sure. You'll be in Jackson on March 18th with uh Merle and Rena Evers. Right. So that'll be that'll be great. That's that's one place he'll be, folks, and uh uh be sure to look for him um around your neck of the woods as well. Jerry, thank you, man. Thank you so much. God bless you, my friend. God bless Jerry you. Mitchell. Thank you so much. Jerry Mitchell. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.